I got something for my wife very special for Valentine's Day, which is a big, big happy Valentine's Day to my beautiful, lovely wife on a nationally listened to oh, podcast. Lord. Who could ask for more? Wow. <laughs> Making Kaylee wow. and I and Galen <laughs> look like schlubs. I mean, yeah. I guess we have to put that as the cold open now. We don't really have a choice anymore. <laughs> oh my gosh. Happy Valentine's Day, likewise, to Micah's wife. Sarah Kaylee. The whole podcast which is a happy Valentine's yeah, that's Day. Right. Specifically Just to Micah's, to Micah's wife. wife. And wife. Only Micah's Just wife. and only to Micah's <laughs> wife. No one that's else. That's right. Perfect, no guys. Perfect. Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. Consumer prices have risen 7.5% since last year, according to new data out last week. It's the highest rate of inflation in 40 years. And perhaps relatedly, Biden's performance on the economy is about 20 points underwater amongst Americans. Americans also report the cost of living as their biggest economic concern. Republicans and Democrats are pointing at different culprits for hyperinflation, and today we're going to try to tease out who is right. We're also going to discuss why Republicans are describing the January 6th attack on the Capitol as legitimate political discourse. Last week, a conflict broke out within the Republican Party over the Republican National Committee's decision to censure Representatives Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger for their participation in the House January 6th committee while describing the events as legitimate political discourse, the events of January 6th, that is. A number of Republican senators rejected the RNC move, while others said it reflects the will of the voters. So here with me to discuss it all, our politics editor, Sarah Frostenson. Hello, Sarah. Hey, Galen. Hey, y'all. Also here with us, managing editor, Micah Cohen. Hey, Micah. Hello, everybody. And politics and tech reporter, Kaylee Rogers. Hey, Kaylee. Hi. Happy Valentine's. Happy Valentine's Day. Um, As you can tell, we have a somewhat serious (laughs) show today, but I did not forget that it is Valentine's Day. So happy Valentine's Day to all of you and all of our listeners. We are going to kick things off this relatively serious show with a bit of a game to start off on a lighter note because it is Valentine's Day. We're going to play Guess What Americans Think, and the topic is love. So I'm going to name a love or relationship-related issue that Americans were asked about in a poll, and you are going to have to guess how they responded. Just to get a sense, to pull the crowd, do we feel like there are any experts on love amongst us this morning? Who's foolish enough to answer that question in the affirmative? <laughs> I don't think I'm an expert. I think I'm an optimist, which may not serve me well. I don't know. We'll see. Oh, okay. that's an interesting way to answer the question. I'm, uh, I think I'm an optimist too, Kaylee. Oh, that's so sweet. I love that. Okay. Well, let's see how optimistic you remain after we talk <laughs> about some of the polling responses that Americans gave. So first off, we have a bit of a, um, a politics related one. So... According to a 2020 YouGov survey, what percentage of Americans said that if they were single and dating, they would be willing to date someone who has the opposite political views from that? Let's start things off with the optimist. Kaylee, what do you think? Oh, I mean, I'm not optimistic about (laughs) the political divide in America. 32. Okay, Sarah? I was going to say like 10% because there's so many different studies that show that people do not want to be with someone of the other political party. But this just says different views. So 20%. I'm going to go 20. Micah? Let's come back to my answer in a second, but 26%. Guys, so pessimistic. It's 44% (laughs) of Americans who say they're willing to date someone who has opposite political views as them. Still a minority. And to break it out, 48% of Republicans said they would, and 40% of Democrats said they would. Okay. I think about half of those people are full of it, to be honest with you. Did you listen to last week's Thursday podcast about how the media overhypes the partisan divide and that most people don't actually care that much? They don't even care about politics at all. There's a difference between caring about politics and public events and caring about your partner. This, is, I would submit, is caring about your partner and, and how they see the world. Yeah, this is different than the, like, would you live next door to somebody with different views? Exactly. Like, this is, would you sleep in the same bed? But also, <laughs> most people don't rank their political party or partisanship very highly as, like, part of their identity in terms of how they see themselves. That is the case. 
I don't know, whatever. Fair enough. It's still 44% of Americans, according to this survey. Yeah, so less than half. Although the people who said no were 39%. So there was no majority. There were a bunch of people who said they weren't sure. So was yes the plurality? Yes, yes was the plurality. There you go. But really, though, our guesses on this and the fact that we view a minority but plurality being willing to say yes to this question is a pretty pessimistic commentary on the state of our country, right? Fair enough. <laughs> I forgot who got that one because I don't remember what your responses were. Someone said 30-something percent, Kaylee, right? Kaylee, right? Yeah, I said 32, so yeah, Kaylee. I All guess right, that's Kaylee. closest. Okay, this one is kind of fun, maybe pessimistic. What percentage of Americans say they have been ghosted, which is to say when someone ends a casual dating situation by suddenly not responding to calls or messages with no explanation? Uh, Micah, let's start with you. How is the answer here not 100%? Um, I feel like there might be something weird happening in, in the polling where how many people know the term ghosted? Did they define the term? They defined it as I defined it in the question. Okay, okay. Um, I'm going to say 53%. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Sarah? Yeah, 70. 70. <laughs> <laughs> Kaylee? I was thinking in the 70s, too. I think it's got to be quite high. The only reason I'm not pushing closer to 100 is I'm thinking of, like, maybe older generations where this maybe wasn't as much of a thing. Do people have more etiquette back then? I don't know. It's so easy to ghost someone through texting and dating apps. versus To ghost someone back in the day, you had to just move out of town. (laughs) I'm doing 74. 74. Mm. Guys, it's 29%. You are not optimists at all. Wow. (laughs) That's shocking. It's generational. Did they give age cross tabs, Galen? I'm sure they did. This is a Pew poll. This wasn't some just kind of like casual polling situation. I'm sure that there are differences across age groups. But for all adults, it is 29%. So Micah, you got that. Wait, maybe this is too personal, but have any of y'all been ghosted? Or the ghoster. A hundred percent. I have been ghosted, and I've almost certainly also ghosted someone. Yeah, it's part of the game. I think that ghosting is polite sometimes. It's like an Irish goodbye. I would rather not receive a message being like, mm, I really don't like you, and these are the reasons why, than just, hey, something, something, something. You never get a response back. It's for like a second date or third date anyway. And you're like, okay, we're just going to move on with things. Like, no one needs to explain. Neither of us are just into each other. That seems fair. Those are not the only two options, like a long list of everything the person doesn't like about you or ghosting, (laughs) right? You can just say a polite, hey, I don't think this is going to work out. Best of luck. Thanks. Even that, I think, can be like kind of, Rude. Yeah. Everyone understands what it means to not respond to a follow-up on a second or third date. Exactly. Right? Like if you're like, hey, are you free for drinks this week after you've gone on a first date and the person doesn't respond? There's no message received. Like we all know right. what under we all understand what happened. And it might be even nicer than ever having to hear like, hey, like I don't think we kicked it off, blah, 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 whatever. See, heartily disagree. Cause sure everybody knows what that means. But that means that before you get that message, you have first couple hours, well, they might just not have seen it yet. Next few hours, you start to get a little anxious. What does this mean? And then eventually you get the message. But when is that eventually? It's, It's different for different people. So I think it's undue stress, unnecessary stress. Be polite. Send a message just saying, hey, I'm going elsewhere. Yeah, my God. I think ultimately... You're right. I don't want to be the one defending ghosting on this podcast for the sake of my inbox. Um. (laughs) This might be selective memory, but I don't think I've ever ghosted anybody. Um, Maybe I've never had the opportunity to ghost anybody, but I don't think I've ever ghosted anybody. It's not polite. It's mean. I don't know. I think it's a little more complicated. I don't think it's just straight up mean. I myself would rather be ghosted. And maybe that's crazy. In some situations. It's cowardly. Not by someone who I've gone on a handful of dates with. Like, that is psychotic. Like, two years in. That's insane. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I would say if you've gone on, like, two and a half dates or more, it requires an explanation. What is a half date? I don't know. It's just like an average. Like an average. Well, if someone if someone ghosts you in the middle of dinner, Kaylee, that's half a date. Oh my god. I haven't been single in a very long time, so I sometimes feel like an old 
person in these conversations. I started dating my husband before dating apps were a thing, so I'm woefully unprepared for that question. Kaylee, I'm happy that you've never had to experience the wide world of dating apps, <laughs> especially in New York City. Uh, Next question, Sarah, we're starting with you. What percentage of Americans have experienced heartbreak? Or at least will say to a pollster that they've experienced heartbreak. 80%. Kaylee? 68. 68. Micah? 81%. Wow. Sarah, you got it. Okay. It is 79% of American adults say that they have been heartbroken. So I guess people were pretty honest in this one. This is a YouGov poll, and they also polled Brits about whether they have ever had their heart broken. Do you think that more or fewer Brits say that they've had their heart broken than Americans? Fewer. I want to say fewer. More. It's fewer by, like, a significant clip. It's 20 points lower. So 61% of British people said they'd have their heart broken. British people are notorious for being, like, unemotional and <laughs> That's true. Heartless. They got a stiff upper lip, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that means that each one of you have a point. We're going to do a tiebreaker, and then we're going to move on to our serious topics for the day. Can I just say, we should do a story about the 21% of Americans who have never had their heart broken. That's interesting. Who are those people? I feel like maybe those are just people who've never been in love. Or met the love of their life. It could be young people. Out of the gate. Yeah, that's the optimistic answer. I don't want to hear from those people. (laughs) (laughs) Kaylee, it sounds like you were kind of one of these people. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. I I didn't meet my husband that young. (laughs) So for our, our final question... I want your input. Do you want to think about like the percentage of Americans who are interested in or open to an open relationship, percentage of Americans who say they've been a part of a love triangle, the percentage of Americans who told the pollster that they've looked through their partner's phone. Ooh, let's do that one. Okay. There's a Pew poll. Again, these are rigorous surveys asking Americans about real life issues. So a Pew poll from October 2019 found that a majority of Americans think that it is rarely or never acceptable for someone to look through a partner's phone. But what percentage of Americans do you think have actually looked through their partner's phone? Or at least will tell a pollster that they've looked through their partner's phone. Kaylee, kick us off. Are there like definitions at all around what looking through your partner's phone means? Says someone who has Come looked on, through Kaylee. their partner's phone. That's <laughs> Kaylee. That was a tip off right there. hundred <laughs> percent. Um, I've done it versus who would admit it. I'm going to go like 48%. 48, okay. Sarah? Yeah, it's definitely over 60, but I don't think people are fessing up. So 36. Okay. How honest do it? Because I agree. I agree with Kaylee and Sarah. Lots of people have done this. I'll say 49%. And Sarah wins this game of guess what Americans think. It is 34% of partnered adults say they have done this. It's much higher, though. Come on. Liars. (laughs) Liars. So here is a question. Do you think more men or women say that they have looked through their partner's phone? Women? I feel like I don't want to answer this question. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like women? I don't know why. Okay, it is women by a lot. So 42% of women say that they have done so. Only 25% of men say they have done so. This is like a good use of polling or bad use of polling. Do you think that's a real differential? Do you think there's a differential in honesty? Could be both. I don't know. I don't know how to evaluate this. This is so tricky because... My intuition was that the number was going to be higher among women, but then I thought, well, okay, how much of that is just popular culture and that image? And so it's it's all tied together. I don't know if that's a real number or not. I think over the long run, all genders are just as likely to do this as my guess. That seems right. I wonder if there's just more like openness among women. That means, Micah, that you don't trust the polls. (laughs) (laughs) I've never done this. For what it's worth. <laughs> I've never done this either, um, for what it's worth. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm not just like lying to the pollster or lying to the podcast audience. I'm almost positive I've never done this. Don't worry, Sarah and Kaylee, we won't ask you. Kaylee's already come Notice out. the women are conspicuously quiet <laughs> on this. <laughs> See, this is a real number. This is a real I number. I didn't want to point that out. Not to make this a, a serious thing, but 
when you're polling people, you generally want to ask them about behaviors more than beliefs because behaviors are something it's like we were talking about this in a poll we discussed conducting with Ipsos. But the, maybe the exception to that is like personal relationship stuff, I just feel like is more susceptible to self-delusional answers and just misleading answers from the public than, you know, like, what do you think about climate change? Well, fair enough. It, this turned into a good use of polling, bad use of polling segment as well. Audience, you will have to decide for yourself what you believe. Um, congratulations, Sarah, on winning this round of Guess What Americans Think. If you liked this segment, we have a whole video where we asked people out on the street in New York to guess what Americans think about love as part of our United Stats of America series. It was fun and cute. We found some very romantic couples in Washington Square Park. Listeners can check out that video on 538 YouTube channel. So make sure you subscribe to that channel if you haven't already. Now that we have gotten love out of the way, let's talk about everything else that's going on. But first. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. A Republican National Committee resolution censuring Representatives Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger for participating in the House January 6th investigation accused those representatives of, quote, the persecution of ordinary citizens engaged in legitimate political discourse. Various Republican senators have criticized the RNC resolution, and Senate Minority Leader McConnell reiterated that January 6th was a violent insurrection. In response, RNC spokeswoman Daniel Alvarez said outside the D.C. bubble, our grassroots are very supportive of the decision to hold Cheney and Kinzinger accountable. And Senator Josh Hawley told reporters, listen, whatever you think about the RNC vote, it reflects the view of most Republican voters. So, Let's actually talk about what's going on beneath the surface of this conflict and, and whether or not the RNC and Josh Hawley are right about Republican voters. In fact, let's start there. Sarah, kick us off. Are Hawley and the RNC right that this resolution describing the events of January 6th as a legitimate political discourse and the House investigation of persecution of ordinary citizens engaged in legitimate political discourse, is that how Republican voters feel? Yes and no. It's yes in the sense that grassroots groups have moved to penalize Republicans like Cheney and Kinzinger at the local level. You know, this was something that Perry Bacon now at the Washington Post had written for 538 in like February or March of 2021. You saw that Republicans who had voted to impeach Trump were being censured by both like local and state committees reporting about the back channels that were happening in light of drafting this resolution showed too that McDaniels had to do a lot in terms of kind of tampering down what the resolution first said, which was that McCarthy should evict both Kinsinger and Cheney from the party. And they got to this legitimate discourse um, as kind of a compromise. So I do think that there is a current within the Republican Party that is upset by this, is in line with this view. But I think the no component of this is I'm not sure how important this is to voters and how representative this is of Republicans writ large. There's a sizable portion of the party, I think, that does agree with censures of this nature and with the idea that January 6th was legitimate political discourse. And this resolution was for those Republicans. So a couple of things. One is Sarah's right. It's certainly true there's a portion of the Republican Party that doesn't want to talk about January 6th and supports efforts to combat Republican politicians who do want to investigate and talk about January 6th. That said, there are big portions of the party who have more reality-based views on this. You know, a Washington Post poll from, I think it was December 2021, asked people whether the protesters who entered the U.S. Capitol were mostly peaceful, mostly violent, or equally peaceful and violent. And among Republicans, 
26% said mostly violent, 37% said equally both, so peaceful and violent, and 36% said mostly peaceful. So that's a majority who are saying there was at least some violence. There was another earlier in 2021, a CNN poll asked whether the Republican Party should or should not penalize elected officials who have expressed opposition to Donald Trump. And only 20% said should, 76% said should not. So even today, I feel like there are members of the Republican Party, voters writ large, who are not on board with this kind of censure. Honestly, though, I think all that sort of misses the point. I think that this legitimate political discourse language I'm not even sure Republicans were referring to the violence. The RNC was referring to the violence when they wrote it. I think that language and that statement is part of a bigger effort by Republicans, including McConnell, by the way, to basically just like whitewash the insurrection out of our collective memories and out of U.S. political history. And the idea is to just like, pretend that day was just a peaceful protest. And so in that sense, when someone like Hawley says, well, whatever you think this view is representative of the views of the Republican Party, it's like, well, yeah, because you've now spent however much time trying to convince people and pretending that there there wasn't really violence on that day. Wait, wait, wait. You said that Mitch McConnell is included in the group of people who are trying to whitewash it. He said last week, he called it a violent insurrection last week, and he's been supporting Liz Cheney, you know, and for that matter, Kinzinger as well, basically in participating in this investigation. Sure. But the truth is McConnell would love to never talk about January 6th again. Exactly. I, th- I think that's the tension here. 100%. He absolutely was not supportive of the committee being formed to begin with. You know, he stood by Cheney and tried to support her participation on it, but was not in favor of the committee even being formed. And I think what's being captured here is a couple different groups. There are groups that are genuinely believing that January 6th was not as bad as the you know media portrays it or who think there's a lot of conspiracy theories around January 6th as well. And I think some of that polling, picking up like, was it violent or not? It reminds me of when we poll Americans on their views about how democracy is in this country, and both Democrats and Republicans are concerned, but for different reasons. And so there's a lot of Republicans who believe that there was some kind of conspiracy around January 6th, that there were instigators either from Antifa or from the FBI, and those were the real violent actors. And there was actual, you know, patriots who were participating and were kind of egged on, but wouldn't have done that otherwise. And were trying to engage in, quote, legitimate political discourse. So there's that aspect of it. There's also people who, regardless of how they feel about January 6th, just really feel sort of betrayed by Cheney for participating in the commission and for voting to impeach Trump. They feel like regardless of what happened, like we should be sticking together as a party and moving away from this and kind of not talking about it or sweeping under the rug, rather than continuing to join in with the Democrats in investigating it and looking at it further. So I think it's capturing a lot of legitimate sentiment within the Republican Party. I think the RNC knows exactly what they're doing. And those who didn't really like it might be willing to kind of live with it for the good of the party. I mean, they know that they need that Trumpian base in order to succeed. So they're never going to completely part with it. It's interesting, though, given the large majority of Republicans who do just want to move on from January 6th and they say, hey, we're talking about it too much. I don't think that the committee's outcome here is going to be fair. Why then the RNC decided to double down on Kinzinger and Cheney for this does kind of strike you as an odd move, particularly given like the midterms are coming up. How much do voters actually really care about this. And that is, I think, what kind of felt mismatched about this is, and, you know, what Senate Republicans, for the most part, have been the ones speaking out against. You haven't seen House Republicans condemning this, which is telling in the sense that, you know, Senate Republicans are the ones who have to put together a statewide coalition. A House district doesn't, so they can afford to be a bit more extreme in some of their views. Basically, one of the main criticisms here is that this is bad politics, like the RNC. Yes bringing this up as a topic themselves. I think that that is myopic to think that it's bad politics and is missing a lot of sentiment from Republican voters. To Kaylee's point, bad politics for whom? It might be bad politics for a lot of 
GOP candidates running for the Senate, who, as Sarah said, have to put together a coalition that can win statewide. Is it bad politics for the head of the RNC, who basically just has to have Trump support? Probably not. I think it's good politics for her. And it speaks to this broader split within the party, basically between Trump and the diehards and McConnell and the still diehards, but a little more sort of like electorally focused wing of the Republican Party, where Trump constantly brings up 2020 and fraud and January 6th, and he's going to pardon people and and all that kind of stuff. And I think for McConnell, McConnell's perfectly willing not to support a January 6th bipartisan select committee or whatever. He's perfectly willing to, you know, essentially try to brush that day under the rug. But he doesn't want to talk about it. He wants to brush it on the rug and he wants to talk about Biden and inflation and and whatever else. So I think that is a, a broader split within the GOP. But is the thinking that, that there's a coalition of Republican voters who would punish their state senators for the RNC issuing this censure? I just don't, I feel like there's maybe some people for whom it left a poor taste in their mouth, but there's not going to be any real consequences. And had they skipped this, there could potentially be consequences from the other wing of the party who feel very strongly about this. I think that's right, Kaylee. And I think this is maybe cynical, but the RNC's political calculus on this might be right and McConnell's might be wrong. I mean, I think the argument from the other side against the RNC resolution is that any moment, any day you're talking about January 6th, you're sort of fighting the political argument on weak territory for Republicans. Lots of polls, including many we just mentioned, show people aren't in favor of violent insurrections, including lots of Republicans, as opposed to you should be spending every day, you know, attacking Biden, talking about inflation, just talking about other stuff. That argument like makes sense as far as it goes. Where it might fall apart, though, is we actually haven't seen all that much evidence that voters are willing to punish Republicans, which is to say, vote against them for anti-small-D Democratic behavior, including the violent insurrection. It just doesn't seem to be at the top of their priority list, voters' priority list. So in that sense, maybe the maybe the RNC's political calculus is, is right, because it definitely is at the top of the Republican base's priority list in some sense. Is it though? Honestly, that's what I struggle with in this is if a majority of Republicans want to move on from January 6th, this RNC statement then puts the news cycle back on that. It shows intraparty fighting. And I just don't know if this is what animates voters in terms of why they want to turn out for the midterm elections. I mean, January 6th didn't play a huge role in the Virginia gubernatorial election or New Jersey's, and Republicans had really strong turnouts in both of those elections, one Virginia. I don't know. Yeah, I have to think it's a a minute part of the Republican Party that's thinking about Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger on a regular enough basis to even want to say something about them. And in that case, like, how much power do they actually have? Like, I think it's always framed as like, oh, the base, the base, the base, the grassroots, like, what if they come for you? What are you going to, like, you know, your hands are tied. Like, in fact, in the Washington Post, a lot of the reporting about RNC Chair Ronna McDaniel's role in this is that basically her hands were tied and she didn't really want the resolution. But like, how much power does this extremely small segment of people actually have? Well, that small segment of people includes the former president of the United States, Donald Trump. So I think they actually have a good deal of power. And I don't know if it's that small. Like the people who don't want to talk about January 6th might also be in favor of the censure because by having a committee at all, that's continuing to talk about January 6th and shine a light on it. And so it's sort of paradoxical. I I mean, I get the argument that by then censoring, you're also shining a light on it. But that seems like a weaker argument to me. But look at Yunkin. I mean, Yunkin is held up as this like middle road between, you know, a Trump style candidate and a Mitt Romney style candidate. He's like Trumpism without Trump and a little more polished and centrist or whatever. But Yunkin, if I remember correctly, played footsie with the 2020 election fraud conspiracy stuff. 
I mean, he went out of his way to walk it all back. So I, he, someone on his team or he must have thought that it wasn't politically advantageous, but maybe dipping a toe in and then walking it back is just enough to keep the base happy. I have no idea. I mean, he got the Trump endorsement, so. Right. I think that's the maybe the right way to look at it is I think a lot of Republicans, however big that part of the party is that actively thinks, you know, the 2020 election was stolen and we know majority of Republicans say they think that, right? But actively, that's a motivating factor for them. I think a lot of Republican candidates, however big they think that group is, they see that group as necessary for a winning coalition. So it's like, you need them to win if you're a Republican, basically. Okay, this leads me to maybe a broader question here, which is this kind of conflict between a super engaged and perhaps angry grassroots and elites within the party who may sometimes have a moderating force happen all the time, right? There's a conflict in the Democratic Party right now about eliminating student debt. Obviously, the subject matter is very, very different on the Democratic side, but there are often these conflicts between activists and lawmakers, the establishment, whatever. My perception here is that oftentimes the grassroots wins on the Republican side and oftentimes they lose on the Democratic side. Is that an accurate portrayal of the relationships between the grassroots and the parties? And if that is, why is that the case? That's a hard question to answer without like doing six months of research first. What I will say is historically, the Republican Party has been organized much more by ideology than the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party has been much more coalitional. You have these different groups. The party is united by some shared set of policies, but it's very coalitional. It's all about managing the different interests of these groups, where the Republican Party is much more homogenous demographically and in terms of ideology, right? So in that way, I think it's easier to point to the Republican Party and say, hey, the extreme end of this ideology is what's driving this bus because it it has been what's driving the bus, as opposed to Democrats, where there's not just one bus, there's like 15 buses and, you know, one's driving then the other, then the other. Now, I should say this is changing a little bit where the Democratic Party has become more ideological. So maybe we'll see that change. But I think that's kind of what you're describing, Galen. In a weird way, though, the grassroots is now working towards something that's not traditional Republican ideology. Like, historically, the kind of actual grassroots Christian conservative part of the party oftentimes failed in getting their candidate the presidential nomination. Like, John McCain wasn't it. Mitt Romney wasn't it. George W. Bush, like, wasn't really even it. Those were relatively moderate forces within the party who weren't on board with the more hardcore Christian conservative ideology. So it's kind of like... In some ways, the Republican Party has become less ideological and just supportive of Trump writ large at this moment. So I I don't know. Maybe the ideology explains it. But that story about ideology is more complicated. It's complicated. And we're dealing with the two parties with different kinds of of dogma and like what is allowable and what is not. And with the state of the Republican Party right now being completely at odds with Trump— in a lot of scenarios, not always, but in a lot of scenarios is like the line you can't cross and you will be punished for that. There's a million other ideologies that voters are more willing to accept. I mean, his supporters are willing to accept him promoting the vaccine at his rallies, even though many of them are anti-vax because it's still Trump. So there's like room for many ideas, but there's a real emphasis on kind of loyalty around, around Trump. That said, though, polls have shown that, you know, it was a CNN poll over the summer, but 76 percent of Republicans don't think that those in the party who've criticized Trump should be penalized. And, yeah, I keep coming back to this question of just how much do Republican voters really care about this? And then also, you know, we paint this as this divide between the elite and the base. The the RNC is elites. They're just different kinds, right? Like they're not the ones necessarily in Washington all the time. Maybe they're more involved at the state level, but they're still like elites pushing their own messaging. It could be that the elites kind of disagree to some extent on how much fiefdom is required for Trump. Yeah, I'm not even sure there actually is a divide between elites and the base in terms of January 6th. I just think elites have like a different political calculus in terms of what to do about it. 
I think it's become clear that there is a divide, at least among some Republican senators, on January 6th. I don't think you've seen that bubble up in the same way in the House. I don't think you've seen that bubble up in the same way on a lot of different state-level politics. I think you have with some governors, whether that's like Hogan in Maryland or Ducey in Arizona, even Kemp, honestly, in Georgia. It doesn't mean, though, to your point, Micah, that Republicans who think January 6th were wrong are out there vocally decrying it each day. I think, again, they would rather never talk about it. But I think there is more of a divide than we give credit for. Just to be clear, I think that's right, Sarah. The divide is not between a Republican base that like supports January 6th and Republican elites who are opposed to January 6th. I think the divide is more complicated where even a majority of the Republican base don't really approve of January 6th per se, or at least the violence, but both the base, Republican voters, and elites essentially just want to move on from January 6th rather than taking it seriously as like violent attack on our democracy. How can we prevent that from happening again? So in that sense, that's just what I mean by way there's not really a divide. Honestly, even Trump's messaging around it has been more, it's not like he's like, January 6th was a great day. Everybody had a wonderful time. His messaging has been, why are they wasting time and money investigating this when they should investigate the 2020 election and, and his incorrect claims of fraud in that election? So that's where we're, even where he's been taking it. It's not even like Trump thinks January 6th was great. They're all kind of on the same page with that. It's just sort of different perspectives of of why to avoid talking about it and how to go about doing that. Yeah, they want to tell a story that's like, January 6th was a bunch of people marching peacefully and then just a couple people did some bad stuff. That's a story they want to tell. That's not true, but everybody on the Republican side kind of agrees they either want to tell that story or just not tell any story and move on. So the story is maybe sort of complicated in terms of where the fault lines are in, in this conflict over the RNC resolution. Before we wrap up here, I just want to sort of gut check. Was I right to describe the relationship between Democratic elites or Democratic establishment and the Democratic grassroots as sort of different from the Republican Party and one in which the establishment and elites oftentimes are kind of win when there are those intraparty debates? I'm not sure that is right. To your point, Galen, if you look at presidential primaries, there were a lot of primaries where the quote unquote more moderate Republican won. And there were a lot of Democratic primaries where the same thing happened. But like in 2008, Obama was kind of the more progressive challenger to Clinton, right? Definitely the grassroots choice. Right. That's just primaries, of course. So that's just one, you know, if you look at policy, I don't know. It's very hard to compare the parties because in recent years, the Republican Party has basically just been for shrinking government and cutting taxes. And they're pretty aligned with the base on policy, I think, in, in maybe ways that aren't true on the on the Democratic side. That's what I meant by like the Republican Party, at least historically, was more kind of ideologically consistent, anti-government, mm -hmm. anti-immigrant this like euphemism, racially conservative, right? It's like, that was pretty true throughout the party. It also just, the American political spectrum doesn't pivot around a perfect political center, you know? It pivots around a slightly right of center fulcrum. So if you consider that, it sort of makes sense that maybe the fringe on the right would have a little more sway than the fringe on the left. We've also talked about, though, that some of the, the Trumpiest or most extreme components of the Republican Party are at the local level. And we know, you know, just in terms of state legislatures, Republicans control more of those. So to some extent, Galen, it makes sense that the Republican base, though I hate that term because it implies such a monolithic force, and I think it rarely is that, but it has more power than the Democratic, more progressive element wing of that party, surely by like numbers, like this Trumpian part of the Republican Party is present in more state legislatures, then you would argue that like a more progressive wing of the Democratic Party is. And so outsized influence in that sense. And again, this is why I think the coalitional nature of the Democratic Party is really important, because what's the base of the Democratic Party? 
people who turn out in every election, not necessarily people with the leftmost views. So exactly. So on the one hand, it's like progressives who, who turn out reliably. On the other hand, it's black voters, black women in particular, who, who reliably turn out to vote Democratic. So the Democratic base, I think, is more fractured in terms of their interests than the Republican base. Although to Sarah's point, even the Republican base is not at all monolithic and, and is pretty varied. But you're right about the ideological point. In any poll, whether it's Gallup, Pew, asking, you know, Republicans, Democrats, you know, are you conservative, moderate, liberal? Republicans, overwhelmingly conservative. And while there's been growth among Democrats in terms of identifying as liberal, there's still a healthy base of like moderate voters. So yeah. I think that point, Micah, you're making about the ideology of this too, is really important to keep in mind when you think about how these different groups within the parties really exact force. Like the Republicans are just a little bit more in step and in sync than Democrats on that. All right. Well, some context to think about in processing this this conflict within the Republican Party, as we've seen it over the past week. Let's leave things there. Our colleague Santul is going to be joining us to talk about inflation. So I'm going to say goodbye to you guys. Micah, Sarah, Kaylee, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Thanks guys. And again, happy Valentine's Day to my beautiful <laughs> wife. <laughs> All right. And with that, let's talk about inflation. But first, People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. On Thursday, the latest consumer price index data showed that prices on all goods and services across the board have risen an average of 7.5% over the past year. As I mentioned at the top, that is the highest rate of inflation in 40 years. Democrats and the White House have blamed pandemic-related supply chain issues and corporate greed, while Republicans point to the $2 trillion American Rescue Plan that Democrats passed unilaterally as the culprit. Needless to say, it is both a real-life challenge for people who are buying things and a political one. So we're going to try to get to the bottom of this. And to talk about what we know about the causes of inflation and what might happen next is 538 editor Santul Nekar. Welcome to the show. Hey, Ellen. Thanks for having me. Okay, so you have done reporting on this. You've written about it. Republicans and Democrats are telling pretty different stories about the causes of inflation. Are either of them right? I think you can find truth in both what Republicans and Democrats are saying. But of course, within that, you can find some, some falsehoods. So Democrats who point to the supply chain issues as causing inflation are right that supply chain is causing inflation to some extent. However, it's clearly not the only issue because we can look at other countries and say Europe that have been also impacted by the supply chain, but we're not seeing as high inflation. And in fact, those countries are more dependent on foreign oil oftentimes than the United States is. But on the other hand, Republicans who blame the stimulus checks for the inflation are right that the level of stimulus that we've seen in the United States is at a level that's unparalleled with other countries. So there is evidence that that might explain 7.5% percent inflation instead of 5% inflation. But it's clearly not the only thing because you do have 5%, 6% inflation in other countries. Okay, so maybe it's a matter of emphasis because one side feels that they have a better argument to make based on the, their part of the data that they're focusing on. To the extent that this is connected to the supply chain, is it clear how much of it is? Can we point to particular goods that are a lot more expensive because there's such a difficult time procuring parts? The biggest things that were affected by the supply chain were what we'd call consumer durables or things that you don't have to restock very often. So think of things like cars, office equipment, home gym equipment, and so on and so forth. Now, those things are all what we'd call things that Americans have been buying less and less of uh, over time. And so you had this gigantic shift in spending patterns around the start of the pandemic where people started buying a lot more of those things and stopped going out to restaurants, to bars, to movie concerts. And to that point, a report last month in the BLS found that durables accounted for 12% of spending, but 26% of inflation. So that definitely accounts for a lot of it. But that's not it, of course. And one of the biggest ways in which Americans perceive of inflation is through the cost of gas. And so you can see that in, in the data that about a quarter of the inflation that we're seeing was caused by oil increases. And another 20% or so was in motor vehicles. So clearly, it's not just consumer durables. It's also things that relate to driving. You're seeing some spikes in services recently now too, although that's perhaps more caused by uh, labor supply issues. 
Another thing that Democrats are pointing to is basically corporate greed, saying that companies are raising prices because they feel they have cover to because of this narrative about inflation when they don't actually need to and they're taking advantage of the American consumer. Is there any evidence for that? It's an interesting claim. On its face, it seems sort of spurious that corporations suddenly got more greedy during the pandemic than before and that they're raising their prices above their costs. One economist I talked to said that it's pretty difficult to do that because for a lot of firms, you know, you can't really price above your costs. But that gets to the heart of whether this is really a competitive market for some firms. So some Democrats like Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders have said that this is all about it's about corporate greed. And it's not because of the stimulus necessarily, it's because uh, firms are jacking up their prices and, you know, they're transferring the pain to the American consumer. However, there is a chance, right, that the prices that Americans were seeing to begin with were already really high. And so when you add on top of that 7.5% inflation, you see like in consumer uh, sentiment surveys and things like that, you see Americans responding even more negatively to these price increases. So perhaps it's not true that corporate greed is what's causing 7.5% inflation, but it could be the reason why we're seeing really high prices to begin with because of monopolization that's grown over the last 30 years, which is a period of historically low inflation, mind you. But it is also true that that could be a reason why prices were so high to begin with and why Americans are responding so poorly to really high inflation. So basically the idea that companies right now in this moment are raising prices needlessly and causing inflation that way is wrong. Is that what I'm picking up on? Yeah, I mean, you'll find some pushback from some experts. And there are particular industries in which you might see some sort of fishy behavior by firms. But on the whole, it does not seem as if firms have suddenly started increasing their prices. That would explain 7.5% inflation. No. All right. Let's talk about the big elephant in the room, which is government spending. So Republicans may be pointing specifically at the American Rescue Plan because it was passed unilaterally by Democrats, but Democrats and Republicans jointly passed about $3 trillion in stimulus before that. And then of course, the American Rescue Plan added another $2 trillion to that. These stimulus programs included cash payments to Americans, the Paycheck Protection Program, large increases in unemployment benefits, the child tax credit, billions in grants to states. So tell me, Santorol, to what extent have these plans contributed to inflation? Well, it's really, it's complicated. You know, you'd probably still see like inflation in the range of four or 5% if you didn't have the stimulus that was passed as part of the American Rescue Plan. But it is undeniable that they have contributed to some inflation on some level. It's also important to note that January was the first, this January 2022 was the first month without the expanded child tax credit. And yet inflation continued to increase year over year. And the same thing goes for like the rollback of other measures like expanded unemployment. And you're still seeing really high inflation. Now, of course, there are lagging effects to that. But it seems unlikely that, as Republicans have said, that these stimulus checks are the reason you're seeing 7.5% inflation. Certainly, it's not a good look for Biden. And one of the things that's important to note is that the American consumer is probably maybe not going to see the nuances of, hey, this is a supply chain issue. This is not Biden's fault. You know, they are going to hold Biden accountable for inflation. And the polling also bears that out. But if you take more of a historical lens of things, there is not much evidence that suggests that government spending uh, creates inflation. One analysis from Bill Dupour and Rongli in 2015 found that in the post-World War II era, there was basically no effect of government spending on inflation. And that's the period that coincided with the onset of a lot of big spending programs. So it seems unlikely that the stimulus had no effect on inflation, but it seems equally unlikely that you can point to it and say, hey, this is the reason we're seeing 7.5% inflation without anything else. When it comes to the relationship between spending and inflation, there were a lot of different types of spending over the past two years. Is it clear what types of government spending are more liable to contribute to inflation than others? It's a complicated question, but to boil it down, some economists would tell you that the spending that adds to what's called the productive capacity of the economy, that's like creating new jobs, investing in renewable energies, things like that, they will not increase inflation and they actually might tamp it down uh, in the long run because you're sort of building up what the economy can be doing. But spending that goes out really quickly without adding to the so-called productivity of the economy, so let's say transfers, like the big stimulus checks you saw last year, those are things that are more likely to lead to inflation. Now, that's more of like a question of this is what happens rather than weighing the trade-offs. And so 
several economists stressed to me that the question is not as if, as if you're saying, hey, family of four that got thousands of dollars from this really important, some would say, program for the country during a really difficult time. It's not as if they would give back that money in exchange for lower inflation. And that, that seems to be a separate question that I think a lot of people are perhaps not really asking, which is, would you exchange this higher inflation for no stimulus? And I think that's a much tougher question to answer. But it is also true that there are different types of spending. And so the spending that came out, let's say, with the infrastructure plan, that's very unlikely to increase inflation or perhaps the Build Back Better plan, you know, uh, as opposed to transfer payments from the American Rescue Plan. Which would be like stimulus, child tax credit, increase unemployment benefits beyond whatever people were making in the past, things like that. Exactly. And I, I think like you have to weigh the, the benefits and the costs of, of any policy like that. But there is clearly a distinction between a plan whose spending fans out over many years and the sort of spending that is needed to sort of jumpstart the economy. The White House initially said that this hyperinflation was transitory. Essentially, it has to do with supply chain issues. Once those are resolved, it will go away. Fear not. It now seems like People aren't saying that anymore, and the Fed isn't really taking that approach necessarily in the sense that they have indicated they feel the need to raise interest rates in order to tamp down on inflation. So what do we expect to happen next? Will inflation decrease somewhat on its own? Is the Fed going to have to keep you know, hiking interest rates and bring it down that way? What are economists telling you? Basically, nobody is calling inflation transitory now. In fact, Jerome Powell, chair of the Federal Reserve, said a couple months ago that we should retire that word basically because its its interpretation had been taken to be as a lot of people had said, okay, this inflation is not going to last very long. It's going to be a couple months. So the meaning of transitory might still be there in terms of it's not going to lead to long lasting impacts on the economy. But in terms of if you interpret transitory as being, hey, it's going to be gone by the summer of 2022, that seems very, very unlikely. So nobody is saying that inflation is going to go away now. And I think a lot of that has to do with how people, including the Biden administration, interpreted the pandemic to go on. They perhaps didn't foresee two separate waves with the Delta variant and the Omicron variant causing uh, the economy to go into another period of uncertainty. And I think that's also what's driving Americans' uncertainty and their relative pessimism about the economy as well. So the Fed is going to start raising interest rates. Most economists I've, I've spoken to have said that they seem to be following the right plan of action when it comes to taking a measured approach to cooling down the economy, but also not acting so hastily that it causes a period of prolonged pain and suffering for people. Because if you go back to the 1980s, you'll remember that the Fed took a very, very hawkish approach to inflation, and it caused a recession, what's called as the Reagan recession, and it caused a lot of pain and suffering and led to people being very, very upset with the Federal Reserve and the administration. So most people seem to have learned the lesson from then and aren't willing to go into a period of prolonged economic recession for that. But there does seem to be a middle ground that the Biden administration seems to be facing right now. All right, well, we will see what happens next, but thank you so much for sharing that with us, Central. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigari-Curtis is on audio editing and Emily Vineski is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening and we'll see you soon. <laughs>